Well, the waitress had just brought our order to the table, and I always ordered the same thing at this restaurant, the Alpine Scrambler. It was my favorite thing to order, and my friend ordered two scrambled eggs, toast, and a side of fruit. And we had made a little bit of small talk and caught up on what had been going on in our lives over the past two weeks. And and once the waitress left our table, my friend and mentor said, Jeannie, I've been praying for you, and I have this sense. I have this sense as to why I think you're feeling stuck in your relationship with God. She said, I I know you. I know you to be a woman that loves God and wants to follow him deeply. I know you to be a woman that's devoted to to loving others and, and leading them with character and grace. But as I've been praying for you, Jeannie, I sense that something is standing in the way. More importantly, someone is standing in the way of your growth. Now, clearly, my mentor and my friend had grabbed my attention in that moment. My alpine scrambler really didn't seem all that important to me. I put my fork down. I cupped my hands around my coffee, and with a nervous grip, I wondered what it was that she was about to say to me. She lovingly looked at me, and looked right into my eyes and said, Jeannie, you've asked me to always speak the truth and challenge you to become all of who God created you to be. I'm going to take my earrings off because they're going to get distracting. She said, Jeannie, you've asked me to always speak the truth and challenge you to become all of who God created you to be. And I believe that God wants to use you, but my fear for you, Jeannie, is that there is someone else on the throne of your heart, and that someone is you. I had one of those moments, maybe you've had moments like this, where tears formed so quickly that I didn't even have time to send a message to my brain to try to tell my eyes to fight them from falling down my cheeks. The tears felt warm from the instant conviction that flooded my heart in that moment. And she asked me a question. She said, Jeannie, do you remember the very first commandment that God gave to Moses and then Moses gave to the Israelites? And I was excited because I knew this one. I knew the answer to this one. And I said, of course, of course I do. You shall have no other gods besides me. And then she asked me a question that I will never forget. And she said, Jeannie, do you think that that God is the one true God in your life? Do you think that that God is the one true God in your life? And she asked the question with love and humility, but the question had the answer hidden within it, and the truth had already broken through my raw heart. You see, there were idols that had captured my attention and my affection, and clearly God was not the only object of my worship. I knew I knew that she was right. But honestly, my struggle in that moment was that I had developed sort of a a distorted view of what idol worshipers really were. And, and, And I'm being really honest with you. The very first picture that popped into my mind was actually a moment in Indiana Jones' The Temple of Doom. I was sitting there at the Egg Harbor Cafe, and and as she began to roll out this this deep thing that I knew was actually right, 
I started picturing Harrison Ford, which isn't a bad thing to picture, but I started picturing Harrison Ford in the middle of the Temple of Doom, and, and you know that moment where that crazy priest is, is, is there, and people are chanting, and he reaches literally into the chest of a man and pulls out a human heart, not the image you wanted to get at church this morning, I know, but that was the image that came into my mind, and I thought, that's what idol worship is, and clearly I'm not engaged in things like that. My next issue was that I had always thought of idolatry as as like an old problem. It was an Old Testament problem. It wasn't a problem that I struggled with. I also, I pictured idol worshipers as as these really bad people. And And I knew that I wasn't perfect. I knew that I had a ton of flaws. But an idol worshiper wasn't something that I I regularly used to describe myself. I didn't, I didn't introduce myself by saying, hi, I'm, I'm Jeannie. You know, by day, I'm a pastor, and by night, I'm an idol worshiper. Like it, it was not in my regular flow of communication with people. And probably the most difficult struggle for me, the most difficult struggle for me was that I knew, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I loved Jesus. I knew that he was my Lord and Savior. So the duality of having to see myself as both a faith-filled follower and an idol worshiper at the same time, it felt like such a contradiction for me. But I knew, I knew that my friend and my mentor was right. I knew the truth that any time we make someone or something more important than God, what we are doing is engaging in idolatry. You see, an idol... An idol is anything that becomes more important to you than God. Anything or anyone that absorbs your heart or your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek or hope to give you what only God can give you is an idol. And oftentimes, oftentimes these these false gods, these little counterfeit deities become so deeply woven into our hearts and they become essential to our lives that if we were to lose them, we literally would feel like life is hardly worth living. You see, these idols, they become demanding little gods in our life. They take energy. They take our thoughts. They occupy our emotions. They oftentimes demand our financial resources. And and idols, idols are all sorts of different things. They can be people. They can be a job. They can be an object, something that you so want to get. It can be an achievement or an acclaim that you're seeking. It can be approval. It can be your need to live in comfortable circumstances. Idols can be sex. It can be power. It can be a good reputation. It can be something that you're good at and so much more. And as much as many of us want to hope and pray that idol worship was an Old Testament problem, I think it's as pervasive and present today as it was when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with those Ten Commandments, and the first one was, you shall have no other gods beside me. It was the first commandment, wasn't it? It was the first commandment that that God gave to Moses that Moses then gave to his people. You shall have no other god besides me. And I don't think it's a mistake that it was the first one because if we did the first one, we wouldn't need the other nine. If we did the first one, we wouldn't need the other nine. 
And, and, and it doesn't just stem back to Mount Sinai where Moses came down and gave these commandments. It actually stems back to a garden. You see, people have been making idols for quite some time, and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, there's a, there's a Christian philosopher, Pascal, who so eloquently stated that on the sixth day, on the sixth day, and we all know this from the creation account, don't we? That on the sixth day, God created humans, didn't he? But what Pascal says is that every day since, we've returned the compliment. We've returned the compliment. People keep trying to make everything just like God, everything their God, but the one true God. And I wonder, I wonder, is it possible that you are following a God that you've made in your image? Are you following a God that perhaps you've made in your image? Because the tension with idols is that idols often start out as very good things, don't they? They start as, out as very good things. The desire for a relationship, it's a good thing, isn't it? God gave us that desire. But when that desire begins to control you and distort your thoughts, it becomes an idol. The desire to use your skills and, and grow in your field and, and really continue to achieve and become all of who God created you to be, it becomes an idol. The desire to make money and, and to provide for the ones that you love is a good thing. It is actually a good thing to want to make money. That's a good thing. But what happens to that good thing is oftentimes it gets distorted and it becomes an idol. The desire for sexual intimacy with another person, that's a good thing. God gave us that desire. But when sex is used to fulfill a selfish need, it becomes an idol in our lives. Perhaps the good things, the good desires that you have, have turned into little gods in your life. I wonder... Have you made a good thing a little God thing? Have you made a good thing, a good thing, a little God thing? You see, do you know what little God things most want to do in your life? These little idols, these little counterfeit deities, do you know what they most want from you? They want to destroy you. That's what an idol most wants to do in your life. And if you don't destroy your idols, your idols will destroy you. It's true. If you don't destroy your idols, your idols will destroy you. And we are not the first people to ever struggle with idolatry. In fact, we won't be the last. In fact, we're going to look at a letter this morning that Paul wrote to the church at Colossians. And so I want you to grab your Bible and turn to Colossians 3. And we're going to look at what Paul has to say in this New Testament letter to the Colossians. Now, Paul was quite stern, and he was quite direct when it came to idol worship. He didn't tiptoe around the issue. In fact, he went right in. He was clear. Paul makes it clear that in order for us to grow up, which is what we are looking at, how do we grow up into Christ? How do we grow up into who God 
wants us to be. Paul makes it really clear how to destroy the idols in our life. So Colossians 3, we're going to start out at verse 1, and this is what Paul says. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things, what? Above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things, what? Above, not on earthly things. So I want to pause right there for a minute. Paul starts out pointing out that the problem with us is that we're all directionally challenged. We are a people that are directionally challenged. We tend to fix our attention in the wrong direction. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to set our minds on things what? Above. To set our minds on things above. But for many of us, our minds are stuck on things in the past, aren't they? Our minds are, are stuck in the past. Our minds are on this almost never-ending merry-go-round of things that happened in the past, things that were perhaps said to us or, or things we've done, things done to us, things that were said to us, things that happened, mistakes we made, regrets we carry, and our mind is possessed with a past that we can't let go of. And do you know what the past is? The past never has anything new to say to us. And yet we keep returning to it. And so for many of us, instead of fixing our eyes above, our eyes are fixed on the past. For many of us, though, our eyes are fixed on the future, aren't they? They're fixed on the future. We're obsessed about what's out there. We're consumed and preoccupied with the decisions that we need to make, the worries that we have, the person that we will or, we, or won't meet and end up with, the dollar amount that we want in our bank account, the house or the car or the vacation that we want to take. And Paul says, no, that's not where you should fix your attention. Don't get stuck in the past and don't get stuck in the future. What you need to do is you need to look above. You need to look up and you need to look at Jesus. Because Jesus is here in this present moment. Lift your head up. Stop looking back and stop looking forward. Look up. Look up right here, right now, in the present. And fix your eyes on Jesus. Can you imagine if we lived like that? If we really said, I'm I'm not going to look in the past. I'm going to look out at the future. I'm going to look above in this present moment to Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 3, and he says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, what's happening here is Paul is reminding us that we literally have an entirely new lease on life, and Jesus is the one who financed the whole thing. And he says in verse 5, put to death. In fact, I want you to underline that. Put to death. We're going to come back to this in a minute. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. So right here, Paul names it. 
He says, these things, these things are idolatry. And then he goes on and he lists even more. Verse 6, he says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in the ways and the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves. Rid yourselves. Underline that phrase, rid yourselves. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Of all such things as these. And then he gives another pretty clear list here. Anger. Rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on your new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. Now, Paul, he doesn't hold back, does he? I mean, this is some pretty strong language. At one point, he even says, put to death and then rid yourself. These aren't like some subtle suggestions, right? These aren't potential options as to what to do if you realize you have an idol. Paul isn't saying, you know, if you realize you have an idol, you know, hang out with it every once in a while, grab some coffee with it. No, he's really, really precise, isn't he? He's really particular in the instructions on how to destroy an idol. If you've ever been to a doctor when you're sick, you're looking for a specific remedy, aren't you? If you've ever been sick, you want to know, what can I do to get rid of this sickness? You're looking for a diagnosis and then a prescription or steps to follow on what to do to get better. No good doctor would ever say to, do, to you, you know, it seems like you've got a headache and I hear you complaining of, 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 you know, really feeling nauseous and you've had a temperature for a few days. You seem a bit dehydrated. Not sure what you should do about it. You know, my advice, just hope for the best. I, I mean, if a doctor said that to you, you would literally start looking around their office if there's a real certificate on the wall to prove that they're a doctor, right? You want a doctor to name what's wrong with you. And a doctor says, here's what's wrong with you, and here's what you should do. And the first step for destroying an idol is you have to name it. You have to name it, and you have to call it what it is. It's an idol. It's an idol. You know, one of my biggest concerns, one of my biggest um, tensions that I feel for us as Christians, that I feel for us as followers of Jesus, is that we have forgotten the essence and the necessity in naming sin actually sin. We've replaced naming sin with nice language like, you know, I'm just really struggling with something. Or, you know, for me, I'm just, I'm really, I'm dealing I'm just dealing with some difficult things. Friends, part of growing up, part of the growing up process is getting honest with sin. It's getting honest with sin and actually naming it as an idol, naming it as sin. We need to stop sugarcoating these things. Instead of saying, you know, I'm just, I'm really struggling with feeling hurt. Do you know what you're struggling with? Bitterness. You're not struggling with feeling hurt. You're struggling with bitterness. And do you know where bitterness leads you to? It leads you to sin. 
Instead of saying, you know, I'm just, I'm really, I'm dealing, I'm dealing with some concerns in my life. You're not dealing with some concerns in your life. You are riddled with anxiety and fear. You are riddled with anxiety and fear. And anxiety and fear are sitting on the heart, on the throne of your heart. And it is an idol in your life. Instead of saying, I'm just, I'm really hoping that, you know, these situations in my life really work out. And, you know, I just feel like the best thing that I can do is really help God to make these things work out. And I'm just going to, you know, make this thing happen and this thing happen and this thing happen. You know what you really are? You're a control freak. You are a control freak and you want to dominate your circumstances. That's what you are. And we need to start naming it for what it really is. Instead of saying, you know, I just, for me, I just really struggle with being wrong. I just, oh, I just really, I just really don't like being wrong. You know what you are? You're prideful and self-righteous. That's what you really are. You're prideful and self-righteous. Instead of having a hard time in a friendship and saying, you know, gosh, I we just have a really hard time. I don't know. It just seems like we can't click. And, and then you go and tell one person and two persons and three and four and five and six. Do you know what you are? You're a gossiper. You're a gossiper. And most likely you're judgmental too. That's what it really is. That's what it really is. Instead of saying, I periodically struggle You know, every once in a while, I periodically struggle with objectifying people. Really, you've chosen the lust. And we need to name it. We need to name it for what it really is. Friends, it's sin. It's sin. It's idolatry. And it's an idol It's an idol because it has gotten a hold of your heart and your mind and it has become the object of your worship. And so the first thing that we need to do is we need to name it. And once you name it, you need to actually know where to take it. You need to know where to take it once you name it. You know, in um, in 1517, when Martin Luther... Uh, sparked the Protestant Reformation. You didn't think I was going to Martin Luther today, did you? When he sparked the Protestant Reformation by nailing the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, you know what the very first one was on the list? The whole life for believers is that of repentance. The whole life for believers is that of repentance. The whole life, do you know what that means? That means daily That means momently, not every couple of months or when things get really bad, that's when I should go and I should repent. And I believe that when he nailed that list, I believe he actually symbolically gave us the prescription and the actual physical symbol for what we are to do with our idols, and that is we are to nail them to the cross of Christ. And as he symbolically nailed those lists, to the Wittenberg door, we know that there is a cross that we can go to to nail these idols. But the problem is, 
The problem is, for many of us, when we have sinned, when we have sinned, you know where we tend to go? We tend to go in the wrong direction. We don't tend to run to the cross. What we tend to do is we tend to go to Mount Sinai. As I mentioned earlier, remember Mount Sinai? It's the place where Moses gave the Ten Commandments from God, the list of, of the to-dos and the to-don'ts, right? And many of us, what we do is we, we metaphorically, we go to Mount Sinai because we feel bad that we broke a rule. We, we feel bad that, that we broke a rule, that, that God is sort of this judge out there and we've let him down, that we've disappointed God. We wonder inside after we've sinned, oh man, I bet God is so mad at me. I bet he's so disappointed in me. And the reason that we go running metaphorically to Mount Sinai is because what happens is we feel the weight of the consequence of our sin. We realize that our life is a mess, that it's all junked up, and we're feeling it. But when we go to Mount Sinai, we are not experiencing true repentance. We're not experiencing true repentance. All we're experiencing is self-pity. Because self-pity is thinking about the mess that your sin has gotten you into and the problem that it's caused. And what we start doing is we start saying, oh God, would you just get me out of this situation? I know that I've caused such a mess. I know that I've let you down. God, I know that you are so disappointed to me with me. I promise I will pay you back, God. I will do whatever you ask. I will go to church every single Sunday. I'll even start giving God whatever you ask, Lord. I'll do those things. But would you just get me out of this situation? God, please, just get this sin out of my life. And what happens is we become overwhelmed, overwhelmed not with the sin, but with the results and the effects of the sin. And at Mount Sinai, what we hate is the consequence of the sin because we have not learned to actually hate the sin. We haven't learned to actually hate the sin. And that's why self-pity rises up. Because what you start to do is you hate the consequences that you're in. And oftentimes, if we're being very honest, that hatred starts to lead to self-hatred. How could I be so stupid? I can't believe I'm right back where I was before God. But real repentance... Real repentance. It causes us to go to a very different mountain. To a very different mountain. The mountain of Calvary. You see, it's at the mountain of Calvary where Jesus was nailed to a cross. And it is at Calvary that we begin to see what the sin has actually done to the heart of God. Our loving gracious, merciful God. And when we go to the mountain at Calvary and we gaze upon our loving, merciful, always forgiving Father, our hearts begin to melt. And it loses, the sin loses its power over you. 
And the way that it happens, the way that it happens is by nailing it to the cross of Christ. And what you begin to hate is actually the sin. You begin to hate the idol. And that's how the idol is destroyed. So that the idol doesn't destroy you. Because if you don't destroy your idols, they will most certainly destroy you. And the good news is that Jesus said, let me show you, let me show you the way. He literally demonstrated it by stretching out his arms and letting nails be pierced. And the king who took nails to his hands says, nail that idol to my cross so that you can truly live. Put it to death. Put it to death. Put it to death on the cross. And this is how an idol is destroyed. You name it and you nail it. And growing up, friends, growing up will always require letting go of those little gods in our life. It will always require letting go of those little gods in our life, those idols, the sin. And I am so grateful, so grateful for my friend and mentor that so lovingly spoke truth to me. So grateful that as we sat over that alpine scrambler and as my coffee got cold. I am so grateful that she spoke truth to me because I have been practicing the continual art of naming it and nailing it for many, many, many years now. And let me tell you, if not a single one of you gets anything out of this message today, I needed this message. I needed this message today. Because that art of naming it and nailing it, it's not a one-time thing in our life, friends. The, the act of repentance is something that God invites us to do over and over and over again. And it's that act of repentance that reminds us that we are ultimately dependent on Jesus that we need him, that he is our savior. You know, Monday uh, of this last week, I was sitting in my office and um, I had a cup of coffee. Uh, I was getting ready to start my day and my week and it was a full week. There was a lot going on. I had put way too much in my calendar than one person should really be able to accomplish and my cell phone went off and it rang and I didn't recognize the number and so because I was so deep into what I was doing I thought okay I'll, I'll just listen to it later and, and you know see what the message is and, and Jarrett's office is right next to mine and, and his phone rang you know just a few moments after mine and, and he picked it up and uh, answered the phone and it was our kids school and on the other end uh, the, the administrator in the office said Jarrett where are your kids today? And he was like, well, they're at home. They're, they're, they're playing with Ashley, our, our nanny, and it's a day off, right? She goes, no. <laughs> and it's picture day. 
And Jared was like, okay. <laughs> and he came out of his office and walked over and said, hey, babe, I don't think we're getting the award of parents of the year. And instantly in that moment when he told me, maybe you've had a moment like this in your life. I, I actually have many of them. I felt overwhelmed. I felt so stressed. I felt this anxiety rising up inside of me. I honestly, I felt stupid. I felt like, oh man, I hope that there weren't any other parents standing around the office when she made that call. Because now everybody's going to know that we're the parents that, that forgot picture day. And I wish that in that moment, I would have listened to the whisper of the Spirit because I heard God saying, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But what I did, I just let it rise up inside of me. And I let it stay there all week. I felt stressed all week. I felt impatient. I felt short. I forced myself anytime that I talked with somebody to have uh, a warm and kind interaction with them because I didn't want my image of being somebody else to get tarnished. When on the inside, I was, I was really feeling crabby and irritable. I tried to hold it together. And God, all week long, all week long was beckoning me. He was calling. The Spirit was whispering, Chini, you know this. You've been naming these things and nailing these things for far too long. Come. Come to me, all of you. Come to me, daughter, who is so burdened. I want to give you rest. I want you to slow down. I want you to spend time with me. I want you to stop. I want you to take a Sabbath. I want you to name it for what it is, Jeannie. I want you to name it for what it is. You're, you're your own idol. This need for you to be in control and, and have everything working just the way you want it to work. <laughs> See my cross over here? Why don't you come and nail it here? And what I did was I just, I kept pushing through with my to-do list. I pushed through a small group, pushed through morning devotions. I planned a staff retreat. I even listened to worship. I had conversations with friends who loved me. I even tried to prepare this message. Until finally I just broke down in my living room. And that same idol that existed over that alpine scrambler so many years ago is the same idol that exists today. And that idol is me. The idol of me trying to be in control. And God lovingly brought me to the place where he so graciously had brought me to before. Not just the pain of the consequences, but to the truth of the sin and to name it and to nail it to the cross. And I wonder for you today, what's that idol? 
What's that idol for you? What's that thing that has captured your heart, that thing that you continually think about, that thing that you obsess over, that thing that continues to control your mind and your heart and your actions? What is it? Will you actually name it for what it really is? Would you stop giving it nice sugar-coated language and would you actually name it for what it is, that it is sin? And would you run in the right direction and would you run to the cross of Christ where it can be nailed, where it can be nailed? You see, the, the reason that we can have confidence, the reason that we can have confidence in naming it and nailing it is because there is no other name, friends. There is no other name in all of heaven and in all of earth that is worthy for us to bow down to than that of the name of Jesus. And there is no other God. There is no other God. There is no other idol. There is no other false deity that actually took nails in his hands in exchange for your life. Every other idol says, bow down to me. But our God, our God actually said, let me give my life in exchange for you. Let me give my life in exchange for you so you can actually be free. So these small little deities, these false gods, don't have to have room or control in your life. And this is where you might have to actually channel channel the inner amen inside of you, okay? Because here is what Jesus, here is what Jesus, who was nailed to a cross, is to us. He is the beginning and the end. He is the beginning and the end. He is the light that casts out all of the darkness. He is the prince of peace. He is the mighty counselor. He is the savior of the world. He is the one who heals. He is the one who forgives. He is the one who brings life. He is the good shepherd. He is mighty. He is righteous. He is holy. He is the very definition of love. And he is the one true God. He is worthy of our worship. And if I can't get an amen, I don't know what's wrong in here. Because this is who our Jesus is. This is who our Lord is. This is who our God is. And he doesn't want you to stumble through this life, to to crawl through this life with these false, wrong images. He wants you to be free. And we do that by worshiping him as the one true God. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to worship him. We're going to worship him with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, with all of our bodies. We're going to say no more, God. I name it for what it is. It is an idol. It's an idol. And I bring it to your cross, God. I bring it to your cross where it has already been nailed there. And some of you, you know, you know the idol in your life is money. I think if we're honest, almost all of us struggle with this at times, of wanting things, wanting stuff, wanting to to have our life be a certain way and have a certain comfort. And Jesus so very clearly says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and you can't serve money. Only one can sit on the throne. 
And I love that we do this as an act of worship each Sunday because actually giving back to God is a way of saying, God, you are on the throne. You are on the throne, not my stuff, not the things that I want to acquire, but you, you are on the throne. And so God, this is why I'm giving my resources back to you. This is why I'm not going to let money take a hold of my heart, God. I want you to take a hold of my heart. And so I'm going to pray for us. We're going to receive our offering, and we're going to worship. And I want to, I want to challenge you. If God is really the one true God in your life, if he is the one that you worship, if you have given your life to this Jesus, what is holding you back from worshiping with all of your heart? What's holding you back? And may, may this space, may this room at 1130 West Adams Street, would the praises and the, and the songs that we sing, would they literally reverberate throughout this space and fall out of the windows and the doors so that we can actually be a true picture to our world of a people that don't worship idols, but that worship the one true God, Jesus. And so, Father, that, that is our prayer. That is our prayer, Lord Jesus. And so we come before you. And we give true names to what's really happening in our hearts, God. We name them as idols. And we confess and we repent, God. And we're asking, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the courage and the grace and the strength to not run in in the wrong direction, but to run to the mountain at Calvary, to the cross of Christ, where you gave us the ultimate sacrifice in your son, Jesus. And so, God, as we name it and nail it to the cross, we pray that we would be set free and that we would worship you without holding back. That we would lift our eyes, as Paul tells us, that we would lift our eyes up to you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That our hope would be found in you. We love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.